The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. And good morning, this is Ellie Weiss from Our Wild World, and we're coming to you live today from the 2013-11th Biennial Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival. This festival is internationally recognized as the premier event of its genre. Uh, it's an unparalleled industry gathering of more than 600 broadcast and media stakeholders, writers, leading scientists, and conservationists converging from around the world to hone skills, explore emerging technologies and market opportunities, network with professional associates, and honor notable achievements in the industry. Today, we're shaking up the show a little bit. I have a total of four guests coming in, and uh, we're going to take one break at the bottom of the hour. So my first guest today I would like to welcome is Lisa Samford, and she is the executive director of the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival and has a rather stellar, outstanding, and interesting uh, career. So welcome, Lisa. Thank you, Ellie. Pleasure. It's, it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I'm going to give our listeners just a little bit of background. You uh, left a career in journalism to become an award-winning documentary filmmaker, and then uh, you worked primarily for PBS, National Geographic, and Network Television, and you filmed across five continents in a diverse collection of projects, which I'd like to hear some more, and then um, how you came to be with the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival, and I understand you also lead the Jackson Hole Science Symposium and the Jackson Hole Conservation Summit and launched TEDx Jackson Hole. So um, why don't we begin? Why don't you give us a little background? How did you go from journalism to uh, writing about it to actually getting into the filmmaking aspect and showing people about what you do? Well, journalism is a fairly isolated kind of career. You know, you, you reach out and you talk with individuals at, at a time, and it's really rewarding and wonderful. But filmmaking is a collaborative process and very dynamic. And frankly, it was just more fun. And I, I found myself in the company of filmmakers and decided that uh, it would be a much more interesting pathway in life, and so I made the switch. It was pretty simple. 
pretty simple in the sense that your journalistic abilities and interview capabilities switched over to filmmaking. How did it? Are you behind the camera, or do you work in front of the camera? I I worked as a producer, so behind the camera. So okay. background in journalism was extremely useful. This is excellent. So tell us about some of these places you've worked. It, um, from reading your bio, I don't want to give it all away. You've worked in some very remote places covering crime. Um, ethnicity, war, civil war. Tell us about some of the highlights or um, whether they were good or strange experiences or um, growth experiences that, that you had during these years of working in, in filmmaking. Well, really, you know, I, I spent about 15 years making documentary films on a lot of different topics. Um, and But over the course of that period of time, I would come to the Wildlife Film Festival as a filmmaker. And, and that's really pretty much how I got involved with the festival, was really first attending it as a filmmaker and um, then becoming part of, part of the group that started hosting it and putting it on. Can you tell us some of the films you worked on as you were a uh, delegate for the festival, uh, what, what some of those were? Most of the films that I worked on weren't actually wildlife films. Um, one of the most recent ones that was was uh, one of the first of Discovery's High definition super specials on um, extreme weather. Oh, yeah. So I spent a couple of years researching and producing uh, extreme weather shows. And were you out there personally in the extreme weather? Um, not particularly. <laughs> mostly, mostly, that might have been we lucky. Think about it. <laughs> so we're you said uh, it. you said you um, weren't necessarily working on wildlife films. And what our wild world is more about is helping engage our listeners to understand what is going on today in the real world of conservation. And it's not all about wildlife. As I've always said, wildlife conservation is about people. And when we can create that mental wiggle room for people to have social security, economic security, resource security, then they have that mental wiggle room to start thinking about uh, the resources and the wildlife that they live with and finding ways to live with it. So even working in non-wildlife, but uh, environmental or economic or, as you said, extreme weather and climate, this all has an effect on every one of us and the wildlife and the environment we live with. Uh, can you tell us some more about some of the work that you've done in that area? You know, Ellie, you, when you were just talking, I've, I've got to say what, it, what really it inspired in me was thinking about this notion that media of all kinds, the whole point of, of media in, in terms of conservation and environmental media is to raise people's awareness and inspire their passions and their emotions to be able to, um, to make a difference in the world. And, and I, that's why you're doing this show, I presume. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's one of those, those um, characteristics that most conservation and wildlife filmmakers share with you, um, which, is, which is a big part of why they come to the Wildlife Film Festival. Hey, Ellie, um, I don't mean to throw you a curveball, but the um, chairman of our board from the Wildlife Film Festival, Michael Rosenfeld, just walked in the door, and he was, he was the president of National Geographic Television for many years. I w is he willing to step on the line and say oh, hello and tell us a little? Because he only has a few minutes. This would be wonderful. 
So here, I'm, I'm introducing you to Michael Rosenfeld. Michael, this is Ellie. Hi, Ellie. Nice to good, meet you. Good morning, Michael. It's, a, it's an honor and a thrill to speak with you. It's an honor and a thrill to be here at the festival, both as a delegate and to be able to talk to the incredible people that are gathered here. Uh, Lisa and I have been talking a little bit about the f- festival. So talking with you, um, give us some ideas from your personal perspective of why this festival is such an incredible gathering, how it helps people come together and how it helps move conservation, whether it's wildlife or environmental or climate, um, and engage people further beyond the festival to what is going on in today's world as we face unprecedented challenges. Well, you know, first of all, it's a wonderful gathering for the wildlife filmmaking community. Um, You know, and that community is very dispersed. They live all over the world. They spend, you know, much of their time either squirreled away in editing rooms or off in the bush filming, and there are not very many opportunities for them to come together and see each other and, you know, talk collectively about the craft of wildlife filmmaking and what's happening in, 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 um, in 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 this arena. Um, and, um, and so for them, you know, this is a, a fabulous opportunity to, 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 to just to get together. The fact that it's in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is one of the most beautiful places on, on the planet, um, is also a major draw. Um, and uh, it's really remarkable when you think about it um, how far and wide people come from because, the, um, you know, it takes a lot of traveling to get here. Um, that it does. <laughs> so, so that that that's that's one part, and of course, it's a, it's a celebration of, of filmmaking and and a forum for discussing, um, y- you know, what's working in the wildlife arena, um, uh, in the wildlife filmmaking arena, and and what isn't, and what our what our collective issues are. Um, the conservation theme, uh, you know, has become more and more a part of the festival, as it's become more and more urgent for the planet, and. Um, you know, the, the wildlife filmmaking community is, is of course, uh, has always been very concerned about, about conservation uh, because they see firsthand uh, what's happening. Um, and they wrestle with um, the, the, the kind of uh, creative tension um, that exists between trying to capture the, the wonders of, of wild, wildlife and then worrying that you're presenting too rosy a picture. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the, this community is, is, has, been, has, been, has been from the beginning and, and remains very concerned about it. Um, and, you know, there's often a lot of discussion about, you know, how much conservation uh, coverage you can actually get broadcasters to put out there and, and that sort of thing. But I think what's, what's new this year is, is this Great, great Apes Initiative. And, and what it's done is it's, is it's brought, you know, a significant... Uh, portion of the of the conservation community here to Jackson um, to be part of the discussion, and I think um, I mean I, I, th- I think that uh, that's enormously beneficial for the um, the conservation scientists and policymakers who are here. It gives them a forum for for discussion that I think is very valuable to them. But it also then um, gives the the filmmakers. Um, you know, a, a rare opportunity to be exposed to uh, to these folks and what they're thinking, and um, um, and that's really what's happening in these next two days. Uh, well, I, th- I and, find that very and interesting. And I think that's really a wonderful thing. 
Yeah, it really is. Um, my background is wildlife conservation, 20 years working in Africa. So the reason we're here is we uh, funded and co-produced a short film that's up for an award and best of short shorts, The Elephant in the Room. So I completely understand your comments about getting together between the filmmakers who are documenting for the audience, the general public, about what's going on in conservation, and then having to get the story right, so to speak, or the facts or the truth, and be able to tell the picture of what is happening on the ground by using the research, the data, and meeting the scientists. So that is, to me, is one of the most incredible things that the Jackson uh, Film Festival has to offer and especially this year with the Great Ape Summit. I understand Jane Goodall is here. Um, Daphne Sheldrick will be here. Last night it was really very inspiring, as Jane always is. Absolutely. And then I think later on in the show we're having Doug Kress and uh, Annette Lanjou uh, from uh, the Arcus Foundation and, Great Ape, and GRASP, Great Ape, Great Ape Summit Survival Project, if I read that acronym correctly. So how long have you uh, been involved with the, the Jackson Festival here? Well, I, I attended the very first one um, and that was 24 when? years ago. Okay. I was a, 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 a kind of a, um, a junior person at National Geographic. I think I was a, a supervising writer or senior producer at the time. <laughs> so I've been coming ever since. And, and I've been chairman of the festival for the last four years. Yeah. So how did you make board for another ten probably? So how do, so you and Lisa must work very closely together to coordinate this huge event. From what we I do. understand, there's, there's a you've huge got amount of work, and 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 and, uh, um, and I have to say, it's really Lisa and her and her, her wonderful festival team who who do all of that work. Well, lucky um, for you, we're, and lucky you know, we're for trying them. to. I mean, as you can tell from the fact that we've. We've uh, hosted this um, this Great Ape Summit. We're trying to, um, you know, introduce new ideas to the festival and um, kind of shake things up a little bit, while while also staying true to its kind of bedrock features, the things that that people really love that keeps them coming back year after year. And I think you've accomplished it. So I just want to make it clear for our listeners that. This is a wildlife film festival as opposed to some of the other great film festivals that are going on in North America and around the world. This is the leading genre for wildlife conservation and other science uh, and earth-based films that are being made by not only the big producers but the independents and um, new new beginner filmmakers um, to be here and meet with everyone. So um, how... Do you and Lisa go about, I, I, let me rephrase that. From what I understand, we've, this year you had over 900 entries from 93 countries in how many categories for how many awards? We had entries from um, over 900 category entries are competing for 23 awards. Wow, and what are some of these categories? Well, the, the content categories range uh, from... Uh, conservation and animal behavior to uh, environment, science and nature, conservation hero, and uh, you know there are half a dozen content-related categories, and then there are program categories that cover you know sort of the type of show it is, whether it's a theatrical or a short film or a limited series or something that's presenter-led, 
And then um, there are uh, half a dozen craft awards that really focus on the craft of the storytelling, editing, writing, original music, cinematography. So there's a, a pretty broad range represented here. So really, so I though, have a- it, 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 this conference is at its heart um, different from other film festivals in that it's an industry professional development conference. So, you know, of the people who are co- attracted to come here, they're here to hone their craft, to meet with each other, and to celebrate the best and the brightest. And that's one reason why it's so exciting to be here. So here's an interesting question. How the films that are being presented, have they already been seen by the public, or does this festival sort of, I don't want to say completely decide, but certainly promote and gear toward what new films and what fascinating, fascinating films will get out there to the public, our listeners, what you see on TV and in the film theaters. Does, does that have a big effect on the public, of what the public gets to see? Really, many of the films uh, have already been broadcast, <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> although that's not a requirement. Um, so I, do, I don't know that... that um, that, that I mean, it certainly gives the best, uh, a, a boost to the community and to the filmmakers, you know, and it rewards, it rewards the filmmakers and, and the broadcasters for all their hard work, um, you know, but, it, but I don't know that it, uh, uh, I don't think it reaches the general public. I don't think it affects consumer behavior very much. Um, in order to, to enter into competition, a film has to have been completed within the last two years. It may, it may or may not have already been broadcast, but... Um, you know, people make their own decisions. I don't think they're, they're very widely influenced by things like this. The, certainly, the filmmakers are influenced by it. Um, I would. Uh, I mean, you know, I, think I, there, I would, There may be an indirect effect. Because, I would agree with you there. Because what happens is, you know, after being here for for a week with your colleagues and lots of other interesting people who come in, you go home uh, with. Uh, in, you know, new ideas and new ideas for projects, and you may have heard about some remarkable work that may be getting done somewhere in, in the conservation arena or the the you know, or the science arena. So, um, you know, filmmakers may go home and then, you know, uh, change their focus or, or or tackle projects that they wouldn't otherwise have tackled. And I think it's also a little bit of a laboratory because. You know, even if you watch a lot of television, there's no way to, to see what everything that your colleagues are doing. So right. it's, it's a way to, for people to, um, you know, to see what's being done and, um, and to appreciate cre- creative ideas that they can then you know, incorporate into, into their own work. And, and, I, and I think that some of the things that we discuss with, with, you know, at the festival you know, may resonate as well. For example... You know, there are discussions about things like, you know, how, you know, what kinds of films really make an impact, and how can you make a, an impact with a film, um, and um, uh, and I think, you know, hearing some of that may also, you know, give give producers, uh, you know, new new ways of of of, of trying to, to make an impact with the film with the ne- the next film that they make. So even though that this is an industry gathering, so to speak. Um, and rather exclusive uh, or limited to industry and filmmakers who have been doing this for a while. I still think, in, you know, also being the general public and being uh, a wildlife conservation supporter and a film goer and loving to watch wildlife and conservation films on TV, I think it does translate 
to the public because what we're seeing here, and as you just said, um, the films that are being made that do get out to the general public do end up engaging them. In terms of the media that we have been taking on, uh, I'd say in the past five years with all the technology, uh, the increased technology, the new gadgets, which are also highlighting here at the festival, does bring the public closer and bring them much more involved into not only why they should care, but perhaps in some cases what they can do. Would you agree to that? Yeah, I think I would. All right. I mean, I think, I think that it's not just the technology, it's the, it's the different forms of distribution that you have now. Where, Absolutely. You know, world where you know, a short piece of video can just go viral. Um, you know, it's hard to plan for, but you have that, you have that potential. And so I think that only, changes the way people tell stories and think about stories. So and, I think, only, and I think, you know, last night Jane Goodall ended her talk by talking about the next generation. Um, and I think um, I've heard Jane speak many times, and that's a point she always makes. And I, I think, uh, uh, um, you know, the media community is very conscious of the fact that the next generation, you know, our kids are, are using media in very different ways. Um, they, don't sit, they don't necessarily sit down in front of their TV to watch a documentary. That's what their parents would do. So um, we need to learn how to reach those, those guys. I mean, I'm, I'm very conscious of this in my own household. I've got a teenager and, and, a, and, a, and a couple of kids in their 20s. And, um, you know, they're very interested in what I do, but they're, they'll, go to, they'll go to the website and they'll, they'll watch things on YouTube before I they sit down and watch the PBS broadcast. You know, you're absolutely right. I'm of an older generation, so, yes, I'm computer literate, and I prefer watching a great film documentary on TV. And that is one of the huge changes I've noticed, especially over the last five years, is uh, the, the next generation and how they're going to become involved, how they are getting involved, and how, as you said, they are accessing media. So um, just to reiterate again, uh, here at the festival, it's not just a, a, a screening of some of the best and award-winning and Teton Award and Film Festival Award-winning films, but award-winning films recognized by the industry, and um, also workshops and symposia and keynote speakers by, I think the head of Google is here, um, to, how, to help filmmakers and um, conservationists access this new media. And uh, is, is that the first kind of workshops being held here at the festival this year? Uh, I'm sorry, could you repeat that question? Is, it the first, um, is this the first year that this type of workshop and symposia, including new media um, access, computer, web, iPhone, oh, mobile? Oh, no, that's oh, a part no. of the festival for quite a while. Yeah, oh, okay. long before it was uh, really widely popular. It's, it's really been, uh, which we really try very much to incorporate whatever sort of on the, on the bleeding edge. Hey, Ellie, I'm going to uh, throw you another curveball and just let you know that um, Annette Lanyau and Doug Kress are both in the room. Okay. And we'd like to sort of move the focus more toward what we're doing in collaboration this year as a first-time effort um, of, of anchoring the festival with uh, a four-day conservation summit. Well, this, is, this will be great. Uh, and that's been a really, that's been a new initiative. This is the first year that we've done this. 
And um, so the festival board of directors a year ago decided that we wanted to anchor uh, anchor thematically the festival on great apes because of the, um, the compelling conservation issues that are facing the great apes of the world. And um, in the course of doing research, I uh, made two phone calls, and both of them mentioned the United Nations Great Ape Survival Partnership. So we reached out immediately to uh, Doug Kress, who had set up, and it didn't take but two more phone calls to um, immediately draw in the third uh, critical partner in Annette Lanyau with the Arcus Fund Foundation. Well, this is fabulous. This is wonderful. I want to thank you both for um, taking the time this morning out of a really busy schedule because today the festival begins, so I know you guys are running around. So I'll say thank you to Lisa and Ross, and um, we'll head into a short break, and then we'll bring in Doug and Annette, and then I think Lori Robinson might be joining in. So right now we'll head into a short break. And um, Lisa, uh, excuse me, Doug and Annette should join in and call in, and uh, we'll chit chat a little bit while we're on the break, and then we'll get started. Great, thank you very much. Thank okay, you. thank you so much. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. 
We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back to our wild world. We're here coming to you live from the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival, the 11th Biennial Festival for 2013. It's an industry um, uh, mass gathering for filmmakers and conservationists. And this year, the festival started out with um, uh, a conservation summit centered around great apes. And we have... Uh, really lucky to have Doug Kress with us, who is the head of GRASP, which I think stands for the Great Ape Survival uh, Species Program, and he's one of the partners of the Great Ape Summit, which just happened over the last couple of days, along with Jane Goodall. Welcome, Doug. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. This is such a wonderful surprise. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do, a little of your background, and what the Great Ape Summit was about this year. Sure. Um, I am the coordinator of the Great Ape Survival Partnership. That's what the grass comes from. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. That's the United Nations-led uh, initiative to marshal uh, all of the different forces that are working in Great Ape Conservation together under an umbrella, utilizing the, the access, the leverage, the, the power, the, the contacts that the United Nations have, and to take this this battle, really, to the highest level. GRASP was formed in 2001. I joined it a few years ago, and we've really been pushing to, um, to, catch, to catch up. Um, the world is changing in dramatic ways and at a pace that almost defies comprehension. And unfortunately, I think conservation does not keep pace. And one of the, the emphasis we've had within GRASP uh, since I've taken over was to try and modernize, to try and catch up to the world and to pull conservation up to the speed we need to be at. Um, with the Internet now, with, with mobile phone technology, with, with the, the immediacy and the intimacy that you have with technology, uh, conservation has to keep pace, and we hadn't, I think. And that's why it's great to be here at the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival. We're overlapping now with a, a media world we never touched before, and it opens up opportunities for partnerships and for telling our story better and making an impact through media. You said some really important things right there that I'd just like to touch on again and, and help our listeners who are very engaged in our wild world and, and understanding and wanting to learn about what's going on there. Conservation has changed tremendously since, let's say, it's began over the last 100 years. The model and the agenda have both changed because, as you said, our world has changed. We're facing unprecedented challenges right now where everybody needs to sort of wake up and take part, whether it's donating to an organization or at least learning about the issues and making some lifestyle choices that include conservation as a life way versus something that is implemented upon a people or a group or a country. So having um, a forum such as the Great Ape Summit where everyone is working together to be on the same page and find who can do what best in focus, I would say that will really help move uh, great ape conservation forward. 
And can you tell us a little bit about why this is so critical today for great apes? Certainly. Um, great apes are at the brink. They are on the precipice, and some, some species, some subspecies are facing extinction, certainly within my lifetime and yours perhaps and other listeners. The biggest problem right now is there's 7 billion people on this planet, and there's going to be 9 billion by 2050, if not sooner. We need the exact same resources as human beings that great apes do. We're fighting over the same air, the same water, the same land, the same, the same life forces. And we're going to win. We're slightly more evolved. We're winning, and we're going to defeat great apes, and that's actually a loss for us. If you, so you when know you think we are going to win, you mean human beings? They're actually the, fourth, the fifth great ape, the gorillas, chimpanzees, orangutans, bonobos, and human beings. And if we can't make space on this planet for essentially our cousins, we are doomed ourselves. And this is, what, this is where this summit has tremendous potential. You wouldn't normally hold a grade 8 meeting in the middle of the Teton Mountains in, in Wyoming. But actually it's very refreshing, I, I think, and maybe my colleagues would agree, to get away from the usual forces when we meet in Congo or we meet in Borneo or places that are much more sort of at the front lines. You, you can clear your head out here a bit and think a bit more in abstract terms. And we really built this particular summit around taking fresh looks at problems, bringing in new voices, new perspectives, and sometimes saying things in ways that were, are not polite. We've had several panel sessions that got a little hot, but that was great because people laid their cards on the table and we can really now see where there's some cracks and some opportunities. What's, 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 as you just said, what's great about a forum and a venue like this is when you're not in country with all the political or tro local or tribal pressures and um, constraints and having to sort of stay inside thinking that box, when you get out, as you said, and go to another place where you can all relax in a different setting, step away from your everyday work, um, I know it happens to me as soon as I walk away from the computer when I'm trying to work, all of a sudden new thoughts and ideas pop into your head. And when you can bounce that off the wall with um, a group of other great thinkers, like-minded people working on the same problems or different perspectives or avenues of the same issues you're trying to face, a, a, a certain synchronicity, serendipity, gestalt starts to happen and things move forward. So as a result of this particular summit, um, is, I think it's still going on, um, what do you feel uh, the, the highlight of this summit was this year? We're, we're currently in day three of the four days, and so I think each day has gotten better and better, but I've been pleasantly surprised. Well, no, normally you go to a meeting, and whatever's said on the podium is said, but really the real work happens in the hallways and in the receptions and the, the bilaterally. It hasn't quite been that way here. This is a lot more of the real work is actually happening on stage, and it's it's a, the audience is a, is a complete participant. They're asking questions and sometimes guiding the debates. And the moderators, who have been incredibly well chosen and and very skilled, have really made space for these conversations and these topics to grow in the 90 minutes that we have them on stage. And I don't care whether it was. Um, a session on extractive industries where we had a mining expert explaining why. Mines are going to happen, and you better find a way to engage with us that is to your best interest. Or we had another session on captive apes in the United States, and we had someone defending laboratory research right next to someone from the people for the ethical treatment of animals. Um, that is not often a visual you get in this day and age. Absolutely not. I can imagine that 
um, as you said, got hot or got intense because these are a lot of, um, I don't know if I want to go so far as to say opposing views, but the views that we need to, as you said, address today so that we can work together to um, create a, a resource, protect our habitat, protect our earth, because in the end, it, it, it is about all of us. And um, unfortunately, the 7 billion human beings, we have to make some decisions about living with the other non-human beings on our planet. Um, so let's, let's just talk a little minute about uh, the intelligence of apes as non-human beings and our closest relatives and why it's so critical that we allow them an ex- a continued existence, if, if I may say so, um, since it seems to be up to us. Why are they important not only to us, to research, to the world, and um, aesthetically and economically? Wow, that's a big question. Um, there's so many things. And I think what has changed, though, and I think what's important is um, there was a time when conservation was built entirely around either a moral imperative or um, a sense of, of, of emotion. It was a very emotive industry. And that... I think is an outdated approach to it. You wouldn't be in conservation if you didn't have feelings because this is a very painful uh, field sometimes. And it's hard work and it's often full of disappointment. But I think what has changed is we've come to recognize that it's not simply that you're trying to save a species, but that everything is interconnected. And if you think you can live as a human being and cut down all the forest next to you and kill all the animals in the forest and eat them or own them or in some way, you know, uh, rule over them, you're really cutting off your nose to spite your face. It's your, it's your fate you've sealed. And I think we've come to realize that if you are saving a gorilla in a forest, you're actually saving the forest that the gorilla's in and the other species in that forest. And that same forest is what provides you with fresh air and you with fresh water and keeps temperatures on this earth at a certain level that we can all live. It's, it's an absolutely interconnected web that we cannot take ourselves out of nor take out pieces. Um, the center can't hold in that way. And I think that sense of connectivity has really come out in this summit where we begin to see that there, there has to be a new approach to some of the, the topics. And I think conservation, too, is behind, as I said at the beginning, is behind. We've, the models are maybe 20 and 30 years old in some cases. But they're catching up, and now we're understanding that conservation is about putting people into the, the, fact, the equation as well. You can't save apes at the exclusion of communities nearby. They need a stake in this. There needs to be financial benefit. And it's been said several times at this conference, apes have to pay for themselves. They have to be worth it to stay on this earth economically. Okay, that can be done. Let's make an economic argument for apes or the force that they're in. So you brought up an interesting question. Previously, many times on Our Wild World, I've discussed exactly what you've said. So it's really wonderful to hear from another expert in a leading field in um, an area that I am not what at all involved in whatsoever, but to have our listeners join in. And it's a question I've asked before. And that argument that's coming in, um, or maybe it's, that's not quite the right way to put it, but wildlife having to pay for itself. And I've had this discussion with some other conservationists and researchers that um, in today's world, are we getting down to a point where, and what I talk about a lot is our benchmark, what we're focusing our benchmark on, our benchmark of health and wealth. And today it seems more about the economic dollar 
which is defining our health and our wealth, where it seems to be today and moving forward, we might have to change that definition and that perspective that the health and wealth of our resources, uh, our other non-human and um, species that we live with, must live with, and are part of this interconnected web, and their aesthetic value. What if it can't pay for itself? What will we do? That's an incredibly good question, which I'm going to hand over to my colleague, okay. Aneta Lanyao of the Arcus Foundation, and let her get um, her thoughts into this conversation. All right, great. Thank you. Okay, maybe before I answer your question, I will briefly explain who I am and what the Arcus Foundation is, just so that I'm not some strange voice. <laughs> Please um, do. This is Aneta Lanyao. I'm a primatologist. I've worked for 21 years um, doing research and conservation on great apes in Africa. Um, I've worked with chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas. And I am now the vice president for the Great Ape Program and Strategic Initiatives at the Arcus Foundation. The Arcus Foundation is the largest funder of ape great ape and uh, smaller ape conservation in the world. We are focusing on um, helping ensure that apes survive into the future and that also their well-being and their welfare is assured. So I am now working, obviously, across all of Africa and Southeast Asia, which is the range of all the apes, including the gibbons and siamangs, the also known as the smaller apes. So with respect to your, um, your question, with um, the sort of onus put on apes to justify their place in this world and whether or not there is always an economic argument for their conservation and whether or not they need to have an economic argument for their conservation. You know, I think this isn't an answer that is a simple one. There are people, there are many different reasons why you would want to ensure that apes are protected in the world and that apes continue. And as Doug explained very clearly, in some cases where land is really at a premium and there's huge human population pressure on the land and the land has value for agriculture or for mineral exploration, then it's difficult to convince governments and to convince uh, countries that are struggling with economic development goals that they need to protect that forest to ensure that species are protected. And in that case, if you can make the economic argument and develop, for example, ecotourism, which can generate millions of dollars per year through tourism to view, for example, the gorillas, then you have a very clear case that you can make and you can argue that the forest is more valuable standing with gorillas in it than it would be once you've cut it down and used it for agriculture. And that case has been made successfully with mountain gorillas in Rwanda, Congo, and, the Dem and Uganda, and the mountain gorilla tourism is generating more than $30 million per year for those three countries and is more valuable standing than any other land use that could take place in that same forest. So there's a very clear argument. However, there are other apes where you can't make that economic argument. For example, the Hainan gibbon in Hainan um, in China and many other um, apes around the, uh, Africa and Southeast Asia. And so there are other reasons why you would want to protect them. The ecosystem services that forests um, provide, the protection of the soil from erosion, the enrichment of soil for agriculture downstream, the protection of watersheds and keeping rivers clean, 
and so on are all very good reasons and reasons that are becoming increasingly well understood. So there are good arguments for protecting forests and there's more and more efforts being made around the world to keep forests standing. But I think we have to also look very carefully at who benefits from the cutting of forests or the exploitation of minerals. And we often put the blame on host governments or on local communities for cutting forests down or for hunting apes or for handing concessions over to companies. But those benefits often flow into countries like the United States and Europe and other North American or South American or East Asian countries. And we have to look very clearly at what rules are we using and what criteria are we using to go into these areas and exploit them to the destruction of the forests and the ape populations and all the other species in those forests. You have just, you, you stated that so eloquently and beautifully. I think you just summed up a year's worth of episodes of Our Wild World and explained it with a keystone species, so to speak, the great apes, uh, the various great apes. And you stated that so incredibly for our listeners to understand that conservation is a long-term process. It doesn't happen overnight, and that it is not linear. It is multi-layered, multifaceted, and all-inclusive, and that includes us and, and our economics. I mean, when you talk about benefit, uh, I think a lot of people immediately assume benefit to people. Um, then there is the animal activist or animal welfare that is about benefit to wildlife. Um, do you think we as conservationists, animal welfare, filmmakers and scientists and everybody that is here at this festival today would benefit personally and work-wise in terms of what we're trying to move forward by working more together, especially today with the... Uh, really large um, resurgence or um, coming out of animal welfare and animal rights, um, which has a tendency sometimes to say never kill an animal, all animals have rights. And what we talk about in conservation is that it's not so cut and dried, it's not so black and white, and it's not such a clear line. So a lot of the research I've been doing now, if we work together with animal rights and we work together with governments and the public and the people who live with the resources where this wildlife is, do you think we could get farther along in terms of not only getting a good, full, aesthetic value out of the magnificence and diversity of life on planet, but also benefit and in terms of that benchmark of health and wealth and economics to where we can um, bring Earth back around to a resource-rich uh, environment where we'll all survive for the future? You know, I think that there are, I mean, you've made a lot of points there, and yeah. um, there's no one single point I can specifically respond to, but I want to just say that there are many different reasons why people want to protect any species, whether it's an elephant, a rhino, a manatee, an otter, or an ape, and all of those reasons are valid. And I have a respect for people who want to protect them because they feel that each individual animal has a right to exist on this planet and in a way that is without stress and without disturbance from this dominant species that are humans. But, but I, I also feel that there are other reasons that are also valid. And for some people it is 
it is more important to focus on humans than it is on, on other non-human animals. And for them, the animal has to have a value to humans, and they need to have a justification for putting aside resources to protect them. That's also valid. There are many, many different reasons and objectives that can come together in conservation and in welfare. There is no one right rationale. And I think we have to be open to working with many different people of many different backgrounds with many different interests. And that's what conservation is about. Conservation isn't about one way of doing things. It's really, and it's come out very strongly throughout this conference, is the need to have an integrated uh, approach in conservation. We need to work with industry. We need to work with governments. We need to absolutely work with and engage local communities who are living on the edge of poverty or well into poverty, who are struggling to survive on a day-to-day -day basis. We also need to work with animal welfare and animal rights people who fight for every individual life. We need to work with everybody, and that's what integrated conservation is about, and that's the only way conservation is ever going to be successful. It's a complicated, complicated field, and it requires many disciplines but it's the only way it's going to work, and it is the future of our human existence on this planet as well. I'd yeah. like to make sure that some of my colleagues who are also here on the phone have an opportunity to respond. Since okay, we have about a lot of very good points. Okay, we have about ten minutes. If you'd like, um, I, I want to thank you, Annette. You, you said that so eloquently and beautifully. And if we'd like to move on to our next guest, uh, who will continue on this topic, that would be fabulous. Um, I'm Madeleine Westwood from a, an, uh, a company called the Great Apes Film Initiative. I'm also a wildlife filmmaker. I've been making wildlife films for 20-odd years. And we were just talking about uh, collaboration of many different groups of people. And my particular contribution to conservation is in communication in between most of those groups. And uh, film, because we're, we're basically genetically programmed to respond to visual images. As human beings, we can't help ourselves. Um, you know, our survival has depended on uh, understanding visual images. And so it makes film the most incredibly powerful conservation tool that we could possibly have. And in the Western world, of course, we're very privileged to be able to see films by National Geographic and Discovery and the BBC, so we can understand a lot of the issues and um, solutions that are available. But in many areas of the world where these issues are taking place daily, they don't even have televisions. They haven't seen these films. They're not educated. They're not aware of the problems or what they could potentially do about it. So the Great Ape Film Initiative has tried to address that directly and it takes films by filmmakers that deal with specific issues uh, that happen in these areas out to those communities and um, it, we target the people who really, really need to see the films. So we start at the top and we show the films to presidents, prime ministers, government ministers. Then we have the middle tier, which is mass awareness. So we get the films onto uh, television channels that do exist. And then we have people on the ground. So the films go to schools, universities, 
karaoke bars, river boats, anywhere that people get together, we screen the films. And that collectively, we've managed to reach about 300 million people in the last eight years. And that will have had an impact. The people are now setting up their own projects. So the information is, is being passed to local communities and it empowers them to then begin to make their own solutions uh, to contribute to conservation. And Hi, this is a great segue from her because um, I'm Lori Robinson and I'm the founder of Africa Inside. Hello, Lori. Hi. And um, what we do is, is, is similar. Do you know that more than 90% of the people in Africa have never even been into their national parks, have never really seen a lion or an elephant or a cheetah except in a negative connotation. You know, maybe the lion is killing their livestock or the gorilla or the elephant is, um, you know, taking their crops. So the fact that they can see these films that she was just mentioning is an important piece of them to begin to understand that these animals have meaning and have um, lives that are similar to ours in some ways and they feel emotion and they're fa you know, they have a fascination to them. Um, and, and what we do at Africa Inside is we take the kids into the park where they can have an experience because, because a movie is an experience. It's an emotional experience. It can be. And also going and, and viewing um, and, and having experience of watching a baby, you know, feeding from its mother or a chase or, or uh, an elephant, you know, or a hyena even licking its, its child or uh, lions nudging each other. It changes your perception. It makes and, it and every conservationist I know, um, including everyone here at this summit and, and this festival, um, can tell me a story about how they were touched by an animal or how they grew up um, with an experience from an animal that then they became animal lovers and conservationists. And so uh, bringing these movies into the bush and, and having these kids experience um, in the wild, what we experience on safari, we, you know, we go on safari as foreigners and we say, we need to save these, these, these creatures and these beings. Um, these, these people who are living right next to them don't, don't know why, because they haven't had an experience. With you, them, you that is positive. That eloquently, excuse me, eloquently also took the words right out of my mouth once again over a year of episodes of Our Wild World that um, we here in the West, in North America and Western culture, have such a luxury of access to so much information, including film and media, whereas in the village, in a remote area, there is very little access. So uh, Wild Eyes also takes up mobile film units into remote areas so that we can show people who live with this wildlife uh, the challenges that wildlife faces outside of the conflicts or the challenges that they have with humans, that wildlife has a life uh, outside of us. It's whole and complete uh, and has been around for millennia, as Lauren Isley has stated, and that we need to find ways to work together and live together. So we are about out of time, and if anyone there in the room on the phone has any one final thing that they would like uh, our listeners to take away today in terms of how to get involved, what they can do, um, and if you have information or websites that you would like people to check out, I will once again reiterate all this on our Facebook page and 
next week or the following weeks when I do some more uh, episodes from the festival. Um, any last takeaway that you would like our listeners to understand about what we're doing here? Well, $15 can get a kid into the bush for a whole day. If you want to go to africainside.org, we would love to have your support. Well, that's great. I mean, that's like two lattes or less than a breakfast in Aspen or Jackson Hall. And changes the lives of children. It changes the lives of a tremendous amount of people. When you change the life of a child, you change the life of a family, you change the life of a community, and you change the life of an entire neighborhood. So it works bottom up, not just top down. And I think this is what Doug was talking about earlier, all my guests today, is that the conservation model is changing. We are looking for a new model to get people engaged, not only where wildlife lives, but where wildlife doesn't live and where we want to go see it, as you said, um, the safari goers. So the world is changing. We need to get involved. We need to all um, become aware and wake up that this is our world. It is This is our wild world, and it is interconnected. We live in a web of life, and I would like to thank all my guests for participating today. I would love to follow up with each of you individually and devote an entire show to the stories and what each of you could probably tell our listeners. But in the meantime, uh, I'd like to say thank you. And uh, Um, can, Can we just say that each one of your listeners is an incredibly powerful, in an incredibly powerful position because every one of them are consumers. They uh, are consumers of products that contain palm oil, which is de- destroying forests. So if they could really have a look at the products that they buy on a daily basis, uh, wood could be sustainable. Uh, they can actually change the world through their decision-making when they go to the supermarket or the mall. Well, thank you for that. You're absolutely right, and I've mentioned that so many times, and it's great to hear it from another voice. So today we have to wrap up. We have to go. I'd like to thank you. This is Our Wild World, and we'll see you again next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.